You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2024. Is President Emmanuel Macron of France making everyone nervous on purpose? Mixed signals from the Taliban about the degree to which they're willing to be reasonable. And is it time to start hoarding chocolate chip ice cream? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Sir William Patey and Tessa Shishkovitz will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from Yaroslav Trofimov of the Wall Street Journal about his new book chronicling the first months of Ukraine's resistance to Russia's invasion. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Sir William Patey, the former UK ambassador to Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, and by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for the Austrian weekly magazine Falter and author of Echte Englander, Britain and Brexit. Um, Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Um, Tessa, did I stand all over the pronunciation of the title of your book there? Yeah, you did that very well, Oh, OK, good. I'm I'm surprised myself. Um, You have just been travelling. Actually, you both have. Uh, We will come to you shortly. William, uh, Tessa, first of all, you have been spending time in Israel. I'm sure there is a long answer to the question, how was that? But what is the shorter answer? Quite depressing, I have to say. But some of the ideas that are being played around now are also... (sighs) sort of trying to use this terrible, terrible war for something to find a solution maybe that uh, ejects this government in Israel and finds a new leadership in Palestine. And that could be the beginning of something, hopefully. Uh, And William, you have recently been visiting one of the few Middle Eastern countries in which you were never uh, Her Majesty's representative. Yes, indeed. I was in Qatar, which actually, in contrast to depressing, was uh, extremely optimistic. It's a a country that keeps looking to the future, keeps investing in the future. Every time I go to Doha, I'm always amazed by something new. Uh, Well, we will be returning uh, to Qatar's attempts to invest in the future shortly, but we will start in France, where the president thereof, Emmanuel Macron, has, and not for the first time, occasioned an amount of disquiet by appearing to invent foreign policy as he goes along. Specifically, Macron conspicuously declined to rule out the possibility that European troops might end up being sent to defend Ukraine along with European weapons. Something of a stampede ensued among France's European allies to put as much distance as possible between this suggestion and themselves, while Russia reacted much as might have been expected. Um, William, first of all, does it, not the first time Macron has sort of flown a kite uh, abruptly and possibly uh, spontaneously. Does he do this on purpose to keep everybody guessing? I don't know. This is not a kite. It's a zeppelin. Um, <laughs> but I mean, really, uh, it, it's ill-advised in my view. It p- feeds into the Russian narrative, the Putin narrative, that this is all about the NATO threatening Russia. I don't think there's any appetite for sending troops because it would be a direct conflict between NATO and Russia. I think the first thing we have to do is to make sure all the arms and the equipment 
equipment uh, and uh, finance that was promised to Ukraine is is, is given, but uh, I don't think there's any appetite for sending troops. Uh, just to follow that up, though, William, to be clear, President Macron was not necessarily suggesting this would be under the aegis of NATO, sort of suggesting that maybe European countries who were especially keen to help Ukraine could send forces unilaterally. What, like Poland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, mm. members of NATO? Yes, I think the distinction might be lost on the Russians. <laughs> um, strategic ambiguity, Macron calls this, Tessa. is. D- does that make sense in that context? Is he trying to keep Russia guessing, perhaps? Well, I think, first of all, it's, of course, absurd to suggest to, uh, that uh, European nations want to put boots on the ground, especially if Germany is now the biggest uh, financier of this uh, war in Europe. And the Germans reacted with shock and awe, of course, to this, because that <laughs> is really a historical no-no to go back into Eastern Europe and especially in the Ukraine uh, with German soldiers. Uh, Germany so, was famously no. nervous about sending tanks on trailers. Yeah, exactly. And they would have liked to keep it with just helmets. Mm. But, you know, that that has passed in the, in the last two years. And that's maybe also something Something to understand about Macron. Maybe he got at this conference now trying to trump up support for the Ukraine. If you think only a third of the ammunition has arrived. So maybe he just jumped a little bit too far with this statement. But he's really trying to get people to pay up. Uh, having Zelensky there on a video link to, to explain again that they... That People have to evacuate uh, uh, villages in the east of the Ukraine because they just simply don't have ammunition to shoot at the Russians anymore is quite concerning. So I think even if if Macron made a diplomatic faux pas, the direction of travel is clear. I mean, we just need more support for the Ukraine. There might be a secret agenda there, of course, because it may be, as you say, so shocking that the idea of troops is actually to encourage people to deliver on their promises for the ammunition, the missiles and yeah. all of that. Uh, so that, and maybe even to frighten the Americans into, into uh, ponying up with the, with the money that, that, uh, that the Biden administration and the, the ammunition that they want to send. Is there an also an aspect here, though, William, of, and again, it wouldn't be the first time, of France trying to assert itself as Europe's default leader on matters of defence and security? And I think it can be the case can be made, especially since the UK left the EU, that it's not an unreasonable claim for France to make. It is the last country left, which is all at once a member of NATO, the EU, and the P5 on the Security Council. Well, they are one of the most serious military players in, mm. in Europe, uh, and, and their uh, their their attempt to dominate uh, the European discourse, of course, goes back to the 19, early 19th century. Uh, but the <laughs> By, bygones be bygones. No, no, no you expect us to forget the Napoleonic Wars. How could be possibly do that, but I think that you know there is a there is an element that uh, France is certainly the one of the most serious military uh, European players uh, within uh, certainly within the EU, mm. uh, and they would you know uh, France certainly Macron has uh, aspired to a leadership role within the European Union, made easy by Britain's exit. Um, He did note, uh, Tessa, that over the last two years, Ukraine's allies have overcome a lot of self-imposed limits on what they were willing to contribute. They were were not going to send long-range missiles, and they did. They weren't going to send Leopard and Abrams tanks. They have. Uh, They weren't going to send modern fighter jets. We seem to be moving uh, inexorably towards that. 
Is the issue not that the West has now invested so much of its own prestige in defending Ukraine that Ukraine cannot be allowed to lose, even if perhaps in extremists that does mean committing troops? Well, I mean, there there are many aspects to this. One is that, of course, there are special forces operating on the on in Ukraine, mm-hmm. coming from uh, countries, uh, one of which is Sir Williams, and uh, and so they are. It's just about the question if you commit NATO troops fighting on the battlefield, and that I think is not going to happen. Also, with the with more involvement, what is a question for the next years is, of course, if NATO gets more directly involved, you know, in the end, you know, people will come up with more radical ideas, some of the NATO members. You know, I'm a, I'm an Austrian from a militarily neutral, as you know, country. So it's not for me to say that. But I think there, there are many scenarios that I can think of. If uh, the Ukraine, who has now lost, as Zelensky said yesterday, 31,000 mm-hmm. uh, men, and women uh, on the battlefield, uh, how much longer they can go on. And so uh, if we don't want to send soldiers, we have to send at least proper uh, equipment. And that involves weapons, as it involves ammunition, as it involves sort of all the help they can get all around diplomatically, financially. Just finally on this, though, William, on that thought and going back to those self-imposed red lines that dictated the limits of everybody's assistance, especially early on, do you get the sense that, aside from the thought of actually sending troops into Ukraine, everybody has just abandoned any idea of what might be a provocation too far, that, you know, that basically that there is not really anything off limits in terms of what we are theoretically willing to send to the Ukrainians? I certainly think we're much more liberal in the in, in the equipment we'd be prepared to send, um, and you know I think uh, that's important. And it's important that the Ukrainians get the equipment they've been promised and get the equipment they need to defend themselves and sustain their uh, morale. Uh, I mean, I think the Ukrainians are prepared. I mean, Zelensky's right when he's saying he's the front line defending Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because because if they lose, we fear that the Russians, uh, Putin in particular, uh, may get um, a bit adventurous uh, in other areas. So, you know, you could think, you could see uh, if, if he takes Mobile, Mobile, uh, takes Odessa, uh, Transnistria, you know, there are other places, you know, he, they're already messing around you know putting the Estonian prime minister on a on a wanted list and uh, you could see that happening and and of course what NATO wants to avoid is an all-out war with Russia Uh, I think Russia wants to avoid that as well but and and Ukraine's a grey area Mm. whereas Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, NATO members are not grey areas Uh, so I think it's important that you know, Putin is not allowed to win in Ukraine for fear of what could come next. So uh, I do think everything short of sending NATO troops there, we should be prepared to do. William Patey and Tessa Shushkovitz, thanks both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But while Europe continues to wrangle and vacillate over the degree to which it should aid Ukraine's fight, Ukrainians are fighting and at considerable cost. Observing the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion early 
Earlier this week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time put a number on Ukraine's losses. As Tessa was just saying, 31,000 soldiers acknowledged killed. The Wall Street Journal's Ukrainian-born Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent Yaroslav Trofimov has watched his country's fight for survival up close and vividly describes the early stages of the war in his new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. I spoke to Yaroslav here at Midori House earlier. I began by asking how different it is covering a war when it's your country fighting it. I pretty much spent my entire career this century covering wars and mayhem from Afghanistan to Iraq to Iraq again under ISIS to odd wars in Somalia, Liberia, pretty much every major conflict. And I was in Afghanistan just before the invasion of Ukraine. I came back there in part to watch the American withdrawal, in part because we had to evacuate very many people who worked for us and their families. Mm. And I remember walking around in Kabul and seeing President Ashraf Ghani rally the troops and say, we will defend the city. And then the next day, he (laughs) jumped into a helicopter, flew to Abu Dhabi, and the Taliban were in my hotel by lunchtime. And when I was in Kiev and the war began, I had the same fear in the back of my mind because it was clear that the West refused to provide weapons to Ukraine at the time mm-hmm. because there was a belief that Ukraine would also collapse and all those weapons will end up in Russian hands. And what would happen if President Zelensky would have done the same thing as President Ghani of Afghanistan? Because Boris Johnson and other Western leaders were telling him, you have to preserve yourself. You can set up a government in exile in London, just like the Poles had done in 1939. Mm-hmm. And Zelensky refused. And I think there was a pivotal moment in the war where suddenly he released this video and said, we're staying. And then thousands of people thronged to pick up guns and to defend the country. And for me, as someone who was born in Ukraine, raised in Ukraine, it was a moment of pride, I would think, Mm. because I could see just the Ukrainians obviously were underestimated by the Russians Very much. and by the West, but also, you know, Ukrainians themselves didn't know themselves because sort of human nature opens up like a tin can in a war and you can <laughs> see what's inside. And until you are under that sort of pressure collectively, as well as individually, you don't really know how you'll react. And there was no looting in Ukraine. It was extremely orderly. I remember being in Kharkiv a few days later after its main avenue had been bombed to smithereens and all these fashion stores with the guts spilling out and you could see in the Gucci and the Versace and the expensive liquors in the bars and nobody took anything. There was zero looting. It was a point of national pride mm. to not steal, to behave, as Ukrainians like to say, to the European way, even though it's not like that in Europe itself, but this notional idea of idealized, civilized order. On the other hand, obviously, you cannot fail but to take it personally because if you walk down the streets, every building has a memory of your childhood. Mm. You know, that's where you had your first kiss. That's where your grandmother took you for your medical exams. This is where I was very nervous when I was failing my exam. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you see this city is empty, empty of people, empty of cars, and there's a thud of artillery. And having had previous experience of cities collapsing, you know what's coming next, what can come next. It didn't come in this case because Kiev did not fall. And yeah, you cannot fail but to consider it a personal insult in a way. 
two years into this, as we now are, and to be clear, your book is very much a and a very meticulous chronicle of those early days, which does brilliantly recapture just the shock felt round the world at what Russia had done, but also the admiration that Ukraine's response and President Zelensky's response in particular then engendered. But two years into this, do you see any imaginable end in sight? I mean, the book's narrative is really about the first year of the war. Mm. Uh, so it goes all the way to the Ukraine counteroffensive and then the fall of Bakhmut. And that really the final lines in the book are the opening of the war in Gaza, where the world's attention mm-hmm. switched to a large extent from Ukraine to the new horrors in the Middle East. What we have now is that the front lines have really moved significantly in more than a year. Though lots of people are dying every day. And there is a stalemate, a dynamic stalemate in which both sides are trying to move ahead at times, and neither has succeeded. An end to the war seems very unlikely now, if only because there is no sign that Russia is interested in ending the war. I think the Russians have made it abundantly clear that their war aims haven't changed. They mm. want to wipe out Ukraine not just as a state, but as a nation and as a people. And the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, just recently said that Ukrainians have a choice, become Russians or die, which is pretty stark. It doesn't war. leave a lot of room for negotiation. Exactly. You can only negotiate about your own annihilation at this stage. Just as a final thought then, and I don't know how far ahead you've thought about where your career might take you next, but do you feel like the experience of reporting on your own country's war will change the way you report on other people's in future? Reporting on Ukraine was easier in a way because I could understand the finest details Mm -hmm. of culture, language, and even if reporting in countries where I did speak the language elsewhere, you're still a foreigner. You still don't understand everything. Sure. And also, I think morally, despite the pain of covering it, it was easier because every other conflict I've covered pretty much had its shades of gray. You know, mm. I mean, who were the really good guys in Iraq? Who were the really good guys in Afghanistan? Hard <laughs> to tell. These were conflicts between mostly different groups of Afghans and Iraqis. In essence, civil wars with American involvement. In Ukraine, it's pretty stark. I think the moral clarity of the war in Ukraine is unprecedented since perhaps World War II. You have a clear foreign invasion, seeking the restoration of empire, very 19th century naked imperialism, and a resistance by the former colonial subjects who want to retain their independence. That was Yaroslav Trofimov, author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, which is out now and heartily recommended. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Tessa Shishkovitz and William Patey. And to Afghanistan and what appears to have been an uncharacteristic burst of reasonableness on the part of the Taliban. They have released an Austrian citizen who has been held in Afghanistan since last May. Though it is worth noting that reading the CV of the prisoner, one Herbert Fritz, is liable to prompt speculation that the Taliban were actually demanding money to keep him. Herr Fritz is a veteran crank, having once co-founded a far-right party so far-right that it managed to get banned in Austria in the 1980s when the country's president was a former Wehrmacht officer. Um, William, you you know Afghanistan well. Um, Herr Fritz was arrested for spying after writing an article actually praising the Taliban. There is no pleasing some people, is there? I think the Taliban would be completely 
absolutely bemused by this guy. They wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't know what to, to what to make of him. Uh, arresting him would probably seem the, uh, the the logical the logical conclusion. He reminds me of a of a guy Norman Kember who came to Iraq when I was there, similar mm. with not not the same credentials, but similarly thinking they could make peace, they could somehow find a, a solution. Of course, the reaction of the locals was to kidnap him and hold him for ransom. Um, Tessa, would Austria, where Herr Fritz is concerned for all that he is a citizen, would there have been a vague temptation to just say, you know what, keep him, see if we care? Look, I have to say, as usual, when Austria gets into the news, it's either for neo-Nazi stories or for idiocracy. And in this case, it's both. So the Herr, Herr Fritz, who, who went there on a tourism uh, visit, um has certainly caused a lot of headache in the Austrian foreign ministry because, you know, you, what you do in this case, yeah. Um, and it's uh, it peculiarly, also there was a um, already a mission, a diplomatic mission, that, which was a cover-up kind of journalist mission in autumn, in the fall, by far-right FPÖ um, friends of Herr Fritz to to rescue him. Uh, so they, they went there and later claimed, no, no, they just went to a visit and it was uh, particularly nice to hang out P- with pl- the pl- Taliban. Please I mean, tell me that some Austrian director is working on the riotously amusing comedy romp film version of all of this. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a sense of humor in Austria, as you know. If it <laughs> stretches to this type of uh, far-right sympathizers, I don't know, it would be indeed quite funny. And he's now on his way back, as you know, and uh, when he was released and gave these interviews uh, now in Doha saying that there were some nice Taliban and then also some stupid ones. You thought like maybe it's time for him to retire from his tourism mm. uh, and also writing about uh, these type of matters. But I'm not sure that he will after he, he became famous now. So maybe this is the start of a new career. I, I'm sticking with my theory, William, that he has actually been thrown out of Kabul for being such a fanatical headbanger that even the Taliban thought he was a bit much. Um, but more seriously, there is a role in this uh, for Qatar, where, as we were talking about at the top of the show, you have just been. Uh, Austria's Chancellor Karl Nehammer was uh, careful to thank the Qatari Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al-Tani uh, for meditating. Meditating? Mediating, Mediating was the word I wanted. I was a rogue T in mediating. Gets you meditating. Um, maybe he meditated as well. But not the first intercession of this kind that Qatar has made in recent years. Is this is this how Qatar sees itself now? They are the deal maker of the Middle East and Central Asia. Well, I think they have. They've got form. I mean, they're they're right in the middle of the trying to uh, broker a deal, uh, a ceasefire in Gaza. Indeed, so. Uh, I mean, it comes from their uh, their activism. Uh, there've been, you know, in Afghanistan and in Gaza, they have particular insight because they've been hosting. They hosted the Taliban when they mm-hmm. were uh, in opposition. There was a Taliban office allowed to be in in Doha. They've hosted Hamas uh, for many ho- years they, as well. And they, well, they still host Hamas. Halish, Halid Mashal and uh, Ismail Haniya have offices in in Doha. So they've been. So they've, they're uniquely placed in, with respect of uh, Gaza and Afghanistan to to play a role because they've maintained contact. They've allowed Hamas to have an office. They've allowed the Taliban to have an office and they're and and so they have and they also have the respect of 
Western countries. There's an American base in Qatar. Uh, Qatar has good relations with most countries. They have investments in most countries. So they are ideally placed to act as intermediaries in in this in this area. I, I can exclusively reveal, Tessa, that an upcoming edition of the Foreign Desk will look at the diplomatic manoeuvrability of small countries and why they are often actually quite well placed to get things done despite a relative lack of economic or military might. Um, do you think this is an example of that, that a, a small country can be a bit more agile in how it moves around the world stage than a great lumbering power? Yeah, not only that, but of course, uh, it's a young country and it's mm. trying to uh, push up against Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, find its place in the Middle East as a serious power with uh, good relations with America and also with Israel. And that's why all these negotiations can happen there now also about the hostages. I mean, it's quite uh, interesting. It's not f- for sure, I think, what will happen there in the future, because it's a balancing act, of course, for uh, a, a small country to, even if it has a lot of money and, and good relations now, but to find a balance between the extremists of all the sites that they are hosting there, between the big powers uh, inviting um, the US to have considerable influence also over it and with its decision. So it will be interesting to see how it goes, but at the moment it's very convenient for all sides that you can go there to negotiate about hostages like the Austrians have the, the Mr. Fritz already released. <laughs> but also there's still an Austrian-Israeli hostage in Gaza, which is now a reason for the Austrian government. Also the foreign minister is now flying around in the Middle East. And all this is got to do with the fact that there is someone to talk to who is mediating. Well, moving along just slightly, it is not news that the Taliban are not distinguished by their enthusiasm for a free press. Indeed, as we have just learned, even composing ridiculous hagiographies in praise of their theocratic tyranny is liable to get you slung in the hooskow. Reports suggest that the Taliban have extended their restrictions on media to photography and video, both of which they have ruled un-Islamic, along with, at last count, pretty much everything else except beards. In a series of sub subsidiary rulings, the Taliban's brains trust, who clearly do not have any more pressing concerns they could be usefully addressing, have come down hard on neckties, such attempts to educate girls as are still occurring, and women talking on telephones. Um, William, always a question that bemused me about the Taliban, um, going back to the, the first time I actually tried to talk to them about this stuff in person in the late 1990s, which was, do they actually genuinely believe all this stuff, or is this just things they think they have to say to entrench the kind of regime they wish to be? No, I think most of it comes from you know a, a misguided belief that this is somehow all to be found in the Quran. Uh, and uh, you know, you, I go back to the uh, the nineteen uh, the nineteen sixties and seventies in uh, in Saudi Arabia, where the uh, the uh, King Faisal had a real job getting uh, getting the agreement of the religious authorities to have television because it was seen to be un-Islamic and uh, uh, and um, uh, and irreligious. And he. Made 
he only convinced the the mullahs in Saudi Arabia that anything that uh, that could uh, send the pray- prayers over over the airwaves uh, <laughs> and v- uh, views of the Quran couldn't possibly be irreligious, and that's how he won them over. So they are citing sort of pretty obscure is. Uh, but you can, Quranic fi- you, tests. can you can find anything in any holy text that you want to find there. You, I mean, as the saying goes, you don't read the Bible or indeed the Quran; it reads you. Well, you've Can't got. Find the word television, though. <laughs> yes, no, or gin and tonic, actually. Um, that, that's. Uh, I mean, but the, the, what the, the point is, it may be part of a of, of a broader discussion within the, within the Taliban because they're not united. There are hardliners. Mm. There are mod, relatively uh, <laughs> modernizers, people who would be prepared to contemplate education for girls versus those who are adam- adamantly opposed to it. But of course, it will all come down to what the uh, uh, what the uh, the Grand Amir says, you know, Habitullah, uh, who's hidden away. Uh, if he opines on the subject, that'll be the end of it. But this could be the result of machinations and disagreements or, or arguments within the Taliban uh, attempts to gain power. Somebody wanting to gain power thinks, let's be a bit tougher on the media. Let's declare uh, videos uh, un-Islamic. Let's declare uh, photos un-Islamic uh, and see where that gets us. Well, this is a bit of a throwback to Taliban 1.0, Tessa, because I can remember crossing Taliban checkpoints between Jalalabad and Kabul, which were fortified with smashed-up televisions, uh, liberally decorated with spooled-out video and cassette tape, uh, and so on. They, they did seem quite serious about it. Ditto the ban on photography, except you could pay to get your picture taken in an old wooden box camera by a street-side vendor. Um, but there is a, a simple explanation to, for this, I guess, which is just that they're not really keen on people reporting on them. Well, usually you have even in very radical regimes, you have some sort of uh, mass media announcements where the view of the regime is Mm. being reported. And and that's why maybe there's a little bit of a struggle of how far to go with these restrictions. If you remember when they took over and suddenly the the female reporters uh, were they were saying like no they can't say no they can't say so then they had to now they have to appear women have to appear with uh, in full uh, uh, fully wrapped up and cannot be the faces can't be seen anymore the question is I think there are some women still working in uh, media who are now fearing that they will completely uh, be banned and and uh, and these last uh, you know there are so many um aspects and nuances in these restrictions that you can put on media where you still have then some kind of radio station maybe where some people can still say some things that might be real information so they are they are still um <laughs> experimenting with how far they go closing down everything and if you think how many journalists have left on how many uh, TV and radio stations have closed and how bad information generally is. It's just, you know, the downhill is, we can clearly see the direction of travel. It comes at a very surprising time because the UN are trying, are in negotiations with the Taliban to try and get some sort of roadmap of progress, things that might happen that would enable Western countries to go beyond the current humanitarian assistance that they're giving, perhaps uh, return monies to so they could have a banking system, you know, making some concessions that would enable uh, Western countries to engage. So it's a it's an unusual time for them to 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 be going backwards uh, rather than uh, rather than forwards, and and it may be part of a power struggle. Well, just finally on this, William, I, I did want to ask. I, 
Do you feel like they're sending some kind of signal here? Is that signal either, no, we are actually serious, we are the Taliban as the Taliban always were, we are going to turn our country back into a sort of 8th century hermit kingdom, there's no point trying to deal with us like there wasn't in the 90s? Or are they trying to be talked out of this? Do they do they want somebody to try and engage with them? I think, well, some... People are engaging with them. Mm. I mean, you know, the Brits have an embassy. The Brits have an embassy in Doha. The Americans have an embassy in Doha. They are talking to them, as are the UN. And it may be that some elements of the Taliban don't like this. Don't like the the possibility that some concessions might be made. So I'd I'd be surprised if this these these restrictions were a kind of thought out agenda <laughs> that has been approved by everyone. I think uh, it it may you know it it, it may change. Uh, I, I'm hoping it does because if it is part of a trend of going backwards then the prospects of uh, engaging meaningfully with uh, the country uh, to, to help it out of its current predicament would recede. Well finally and moving absolutely seamlessly along it appears that if the Taliban wish to add chocolate chip ice cream to their list of things deemed officially haram they may have to be quick. It says here that the venerable staple choc chip, that is vanilla ice cream with chocolate bits in it, has dropped from the top ten of favourite American flavours overhauled by such gauche parvenus as cookies and cream and cinnamon twist. Um, Tessa, first of all, do you have any deeply felt views on chocolate chip ice cream and to be clear we are not talking about chocolate ice cream with extra chocolate bits in it this is vanilla ice cream with the choc chips yes and i have a very very sort of distinct view on this i love it and i'm, I'm very sad to hear that but having said that i mean there's uh, an upside there's on. more for you yeah there's more for me <laughs> but also i mean if you think how how we moved on from the strawberry uh, ice cream of our childhood. It was strawberry and chocolate and vanilla and that was it. And then since my children then refused to eat any of these things because they ha- they wanted cookie and cream or, you know, and it's sort of, it's a completely different See, world of ice creams in, now. In, in Australia, strawberry, chocolate and vanilla used to get served in one tub for some yeah, reason exactly. called Neapolitan, but the trouble was always me and my brother would dig out the chocolate side first, then the strawberry and just leave this big slab of vanilla in the middle to the perpetual... You, you could have invited me, I would have been to up the for p- the vanilla. P- perpetual frustration and fury of my mother. Um I did want to ask you both, uh, starting with you, William, what are your general ice cream habits? When did you last walk up to an ice cream counter and say, I would like an ice cream, please? I can, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was on Sunday evening in, in Doha. <laughs> As I was walking back from Sukhwakif, I stopped in. And you know what I had? I had... A vanilla ice cream, because I'm one of these people who do not like my vanilla adulterated by anything. And what annoys me in these shops is you go in there and I was stuck behind people who could not choose from the 32 flavours that were uh, were on offer. And I knew I wanted a vanilla ice cream and was impatiently saying, get on with it. <laughs> um, do, do you have a, a, a favourite Tessa beyond Choc Chip or is Choc Chip the pinnacle for you? No, I sort of, I move with the times, as you know. Mm-hmm. And one of my children is a vegan. And so um, I am going to order for him uh, the Little Moon's Belgian chocolate and hazelnut ice cream uh, that I found on one of our supermarkets uh, to order online of choice. But it is actually a vegan chocolate hazelnut ice cream mochi. 
And so that's what you need to do nowadays. I'm, I'm it has to be a mochi. It has to be vegan. And it's still delicious or not. You can, you know. Life it's is overcomplicated. Yeah, I, I no, but I mean, honestly, it's also fun <laughs> I mean, to I, have some new ideas. I, I am also a, a somewhat simple man in this respect, William. Not not that simple. I was just trying to think the, la- <laughs> the last ice cream I bowled up to an ice cream counter and ordered. It may have been as long ago as last summer in Bratislava when we were there for Globesick. I went with the pistachio. It was very nice. Yep. Why not? That's when I go for three scoops. I sometimes add a pistachio. Ah, there you go. Everybody <laughs> loves pistachio. That's where we have got to. Um, cheers from the production booth there from our producer, Carlotta, also Team Pistachio. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Tessa Shishkovitz and Sir William Patey. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, who is now off for a pistachio ice cream, and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineers were Lily Austin and Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Tomorrow. Thank you for listening.